Acts chapter 14. Let's uh, back it up a bit and start around to verse, verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Laconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes. They rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave you the rains from heaven, the fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Karl Marx famously said, religion is the opiate of the masses. You know, i got to agree with him specifically where false religion is concerned. We left Paul and Barnabas on Sunday here at Lystra in the midst of a worship service for them. And as things spin out of control here, I want to point you to something that caught my attention earlier this week. And that is what I would call vain veneration. Vain veneration. Empty worship. And there's a danger with vain veneration. There is a danger when men are worshipped as gods. And we still do it in our culture. Worship men, worship women as gods. The apostles come into this scene. They're trying to calm the religious fervor with reason and truth. And truly, Paul's little sermonette here is very reasonable. He's trying to get them to chill out, calm down. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. They're preaching, they're trying to calm them down, but it's not going well. And then suddenly, things go very bad. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Here's the insanity of vain veneration. One minute they're ready to sacrifice to Paul. The next minute they're stoning Paul. In one moment it's praise. The next moment it's pelting. How could this adoring crowd turn so quickly? Well, don't we see that all the time? Some star, some famous person, some worshipped human makes a grave error or mistake. And my, how the world turns on them in a heartbeat. Vain veneration. It's when the soul is driven by the flesh. It's where passion runs the whole game. And it's where people easily get under the influence. Notice the phrase here that these Jews came from Antioch, that's Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds. Having won over. Pesantes. In the Greek, it's just one word, and it literally means to be persuaded, or to persuade, or to win over, or, I like this, to tranquilize. The crowd 
was tranquilized by these oppositional Jews who have now come from these previous towns upset by Paul and Barnabas' teaching there. And so like pellets from a tranquilizer gun, the enemies of the gospel fire off lies and innuendo into the crowd and the crowd turns. Because false religion, vain veneration is never based on a solid person as in the person of Jesus Christ. But it's either based on a very rocky individual, that is a human being, or it's based on nothing at all. Either way, it's no good. It's not truth. And so this emotionally charged crowd turns on a dime. How do we avoid religious tranquilization today? How do we avoid getting influenced against our will? How do we avoid when innuendo comes and subtle things come, even in the teaching of of the Bible? How can we be certain of a teacher that he's not a false teacher? Well, Jesus said very clearly in Matthew 7, verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. And the easiest way to test the veracity, the truthfulness of anyone in a message they're bringing to you is, what's the fruit? What is the fruit like in their lives? Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, Jesus said, nor figs from thistles, are they? He said, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So you look at the fruit. And John put it this way in 1 John 4 verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And those spirits can be spiritual beings. They can also just be the spirits of people. Test the spirits. Christianity does not rely on the art of persuasion. And I I, I struggle with this. Let me just be transparent with you for a moment. As a pastor teacher, as one who teaches the Word, I can get a little excited. I I can't. I know. It's a shocker. And there are times where I find myself, because I'm so excited about what I'm studying or about what I'm teaching, uh, my voice goes up. You know. I get louder. Sometimes I say, Cheryl, was I shouting through the whole teaching this morning? And it's just because I'm so charged by it. But I also realize that there are times in my teaching where I'm trying so hard to convince someone of Jesus. I want to influence the thought. I want the person sitting in here who doesn't believe in Jesus to be so moved, so motivated by everything that I'm saying. See, I'm I'm even doing it right now. (laughs) So excited by the Word of God that they just, the switch flips and they give their lives to the Lord. That's what I want. But that's not how it works. And Christianity is not the art of persuasion or angles or influence. It relies on the gospel of truth. We just have the truth. And it doesn't matter if you're excitable or monotone. It's the truth that's going to change a heart. It's the Spirit at work. And that's why I believe Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2.17, we are not like many peddling the Word of God. I, I memorized that verse. I know that verse. I think that verse because I'm like, Rick, don't peddle. You're not a peddler. But as from sincerity... But as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Again, that's 2 Corinthians 2.17. We're not peddlers. 
You're not selling anything. You're just offering the truth. And the Spirit and the truth, that will change a heart. But, but empty religion, like what we're seeing going on here uh, in, in Lystra, this, this empty faith, it doesn't rely on any kind of truth. It just runs right over the truth. In fact, it runs over the truth without even seeing it. The people don't even, I don't think, know what they're doing. So they stone Paul and leave him for dead. Was he dead? Now see, this is a point of contention among Bible students, scholars and commentators. They're not all clear on this one. Was Paul stoned to death? Some say yes he was, and this was the time when he was caught up to the third heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, I know a man who was caught up to the third heaven. And some say, well, that's, this is where it happened. He died in this moment, was caught up, saw inexpressible things, and then was sent back into his body and was revived. Now, some believe that as possible. By the way, note what Paul said there. This is first, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and, and following. He said he saw inexpressible things which a man is not permitted to tell about or to repeat. Which makes me really suspicious anytime a book comes out or a movie about somebody who has died and gone to heaven and they've come back to tell us about it. Well, we know Paul was caught up to the third heaven at some point in his life, whether it was here or earlier, and I tend to think it was earlier in his ministry, but regardless of when it happened, we know he was caught up and when he came back, he's like, love to tell you, but I can't. And as a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, 3, and 4, he, he doesn't even refer to himself in the first person. He says, I know a man who was, and this happened. And then he goes on to say, but because of surpassing revelations, I was given a thorn in the side. So we know the man is Paul, but he distances himself from it, and he won't describe anything that he's seen, because he's told it's not lawful. He's not permitted. Well, that tells us something, doesn't it? So be careful, will you, with with those books and with those descriptions of heaven. My favorite descriptions of heaven are Revelation 21 and 22. You want to hear about heaven? Read those two chapters. Beautiful. Amazing. And godly. So, Christianity is not about the art of persuasion. Oh no, we already covered that. Paul, was he dead or not? We don't know. The good Dr. Luke was possibly present here. Maybe among those who gathered around Paul as he's lying there, lifeless on the ground, notice it says that they stoned him and then dragged him outside of the city thinking he was dead. So he at least is out cold. They throw him on the ground. Disciples are gathered around him. And Luke implies, and remember Luke's a doctor. So in writing this, he implies, he uses very specific language. He's more medical than any of the other writers in the New Testament. And he says... They dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Well, if he was actually dead, I don't know that Luke would have used that language. doesn't really matter if you think he died, went to the third heaven right here or not. I share before, I think that Paul was caught up and saw visions of the third heaven when he was in Arabia, when he was being trained um, by Jesus earlier on. Doesn't matter which way you want to think about it. You want to be wrong. You can be wrong. I'll be content with my rightness. But so here's the good Dr. Luke. He's supposedly dead. But whether he's dead or alive, his recovery 
is instantaneous and miraculous. If he was dead, we see a resurrection happening here. Fantastic. If he was knocked cold because he was stoned and thought to be dead, how bad would that be? And yet, verse 20, but while the disciples stood around him, he got up, which must have been a shocker for the disciples, and entered the city. What? He goes right back into the city. They just threw him out of the city, stoned. And now he goes back in. And it says the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. Wait, the Jews from Iconium and Antioch were the ones who stirred up the crowd to kill Paul. They went right back to the same place. I love Paul. Verse 22, they went around strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, Paul would know. Through many tribulations. Later, he's going to remind Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. He's going to say, you followed my persecutions and my sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, that's Pisidian Antioch, and Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Love it. Indeed, he says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul's definition of persecution is this story. Stoned, presumed dead for preaching the gospel, and if you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, expect to be hurt for it. Expect to be knocked down because of it. Boy, I read this and I wonder, how do you stop someone who's willing to die for the cause? How do you stop a man like Paul who, kill me or let me live, doesn't really matter. To live as Christ, to die as gain. That was his mentality. How do you stop someone like that? I'm not talking about someone who's willing to kill for the cause. Like the recent rash of Palestinian knife attacks against Israelis. There's nothing noble in that. It's just murder. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about someone like, like Paul, who's willing to die for the sake of others' salvation. Who's willing to, though he was stoned and left for dead, to go right back into the same city for the sake of those who did believe. To go back up to Iconium and Antioch for the sake of those who were receiving Christ. He didn't stop. He kept going, and if they tried to kill him again, so be it. I will go, and I will go, and I will go until I can't go anymore. As long as there's someone who is lost. Man, if we had that mentality, as long as there's one lost person, I will keep preaching the gospel. Talk with a young man recently who was thinking about planting a church in Anacortes. And... I said, I'm, I'm Pastor Rick from the Bridge Christian Fellowship and we're right there by Anacortes. And he goes, oh, is that a problem for you? And I'm like, no. Are you kidding? More the merrier. I mean, when, when you know, you've got a town, Anacortes, of some 15,000, 16,000 people and about 1,000, maybe 1,500 total go to church, less than 10%. we got a 90% town that needs Jesus. Oak Harbor's no better. Both towns run about 8 to 10% of the people in Oak Harbor and Anacortes go to church. The rest do not. we got work to be done, gang. 
we got to get a little Pauline boldness in us here and be willing to go back into town again and again and not just for the donuts, right? <laughs> this is the kind of faith to which we have been invited. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, Luke 9.23, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now we've got to be honest about this and understand that if you really do want to live godly for Christ Jesus, if you want to take it up a notch, for every notch you take it up, I promise you, I guarantee you, the devil will take it up a notch. I've heard one phrase years ago, I kind of like different levels, different devils. So the more you go up for Jesus, the, the more you ratchet up your faith. The more you take the gospel, the more you're going to become against in different ways. And let's be honest, it hurts. In fact, losing your life for Jesus' sake can wound you, it can knock you down, it can leave you for dead. So let me give you two encouragements as to how to deal with that. Number one, how do you get back up? You get up in the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work here. The Holy Spirit immediately heals Paul, sets him back on his feet. There is no other explanation for this. Again, if he was knocked unconscious by the stones so that they thought he was dead, he's in bad shape. We would be airlifting him to Harborview right now. But if he was killed for it, even worse shape. Either way, the Spirit raises him up. The Spirit sets him back on his feet. The Spirit of God who is within you and beside you and who comes upon you, same Spirit. In fact, Paul would write about him later in Romans chapter 8. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in me, that same Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, is here with us tonight. So the Spirit will, can, wants to raise you up even when you've been knocked down. The power of the Spirit. But there's a second thing that's amazing here. And notice this in verse 20. It says, while the disciples stood around Him. You want to know how to get up when you've been knocked down? Make sure you're surrounded by disciples. I don't know what they were doing. Were they standing there in shock? Were they weeping over Paul? Were they praying? For Paul, some probably were. Were they tending Paul? I think if Luke was there, he was probably trying to tend to Paul and see what was up until Paul's eyes popped open and he stood on his feet. But I love that picture of a wounded disciple surrounded by disciples. Man, stay close to the body. You get all out there on your own, it's harder to get up when you get knocked down. But when you're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ, that's the place to be. By the way, note this too. They're standing around him, which means the rest of these disciples are not concerned about flying stones. They're associating themselves with Paul. He's one of ours. We are like him. No fear. They're just standing there around him. And the beauty of this moment is when you get knocked out, you are far more likely to get back up And keep on going when you are surrounded by Jesus' people. So Paul would later write in Galatians 6 verse 2, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 23. So they're making all kinds of headway. In fact, I think if I were going to give this teaching a, a title, I'd call it hole punching. Because they are punching holes in the devil's dominion. 
And with this, to make sure that it takes, to make sure that these now new fellowships in all of these towns are, are solidifying, verse 23 says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is now the first foray into how the Lord intended independent fellowships to be spiritually governed. He doesn't set up a denominational board in Missouri to oversee all of these. <laughs> I could have picked any state. It doesn't really matter. He doesn't set up a board to oversee these fellowships. Each fellowship was self-governed. Each fellowship had some leaders. They're called elders here. And they're called elders because it indicates maturity. But they're all brand new Christians. Right? They've all just come to faith. I mean, this is the first time they've really even heard about Jesus in these places. So, Paul and Barnabas are taking a little extra time, and they're going about it intentionally with these spiritual youngsters. Some of them had to be elders. And so, none of the elders were selected by popular vote. Which, by the way, my opinion is the worst way to select an elder in a church. Well, let's just have all the people vote. It's not because the people can't vote in a good person. But it does become about lobbying and popularity. As opposed to the Spirit of the Lord. Who does God want? Who is God calling? And note this, they are selected how, verse 23 says, by prayer and fasting. Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord. If you're going to fast, it's going to take a little bit of time. So they didn't just go, okay, you, 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 and you're tall, you. They prayed, they waited on the Lord, they fasted. We don't even know how long they were here. In fact, the whole missionary journey could have been anywhere from two to three years of traveling from these and among these towns. But they took their time, they prayed, they fasted, they were spiritual, they were intentional, they were deliberate in the setting up of this leadership structure. Paul would later tell Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.22, Do not lay hands upon anyone hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Now, as long as we're here, let me just note something. Let me go on record and explain this. And I've talked about this before. But biblically speaking, an elder is a pastor. Biblically speaking. A pastor is a bishop. And a bishop is an elder. What, did you get that? Okay, track this. An elder is a pastor is a bishop. How about that? An elder is a pastor is a bishop is a pastor is an elder is a bishop. They're all, it's interchangeable. These are not three offices. They're one office. Well, where in the world do you get that? Well, let me show you where in the world I get that. I get it in the Bible. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul's about to leave Ephesus and he's gathered with the elders and and the passage, Acts 20, begins with him with the elders there and he says to the elders, and they're called elders in the passage, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, bishops. So the elders are bishops. And then he says to shepherd the church of God. Well, shepherd in the Greek is poimen, which is where we get our word pastor. So the elders of Ephesus are called bishops and pastors by Paul, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So Paul says a pastor is an elder, is a bishop. One office. But then you hear Peter do the same exact thing. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. 
He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Presbyteros is the word in the Greek, where we get the word Presbyterian. Presbyteros, the elders among you, as your fellow Presbyteros, or Presbyter, your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He says, shepherd the flock of God. Pastor the flock. Poimen, again, is the word. He says, exercising oversight, episkopos, overseer, bishop, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. A pastor is a, sh- a pastor or shepherd is a bishop is an elder. Both Peter and Paul, in referring to this office, if you will, in this, this position of leadership in the church, says this is one and the same. It's not three different things. This is all management. It's all oversight. At the Bridge Fellowship, the reason we call our leaders shepherds, honestly, first of all, it's the most humbling of the three terms, as opposed to elder. I'm one of the elders. We certainly don't call them bishops because Glenn would want a funny hat. (laughs) Just shepherds. In fact, I like Glenn's phrase for us that he uses often, under shepherds. We're not even the shepherd. We have a chief shepherd. We have a good shepherd. His name is Jesus Christ. We're just under shepherds. You know? Shepherding is best done in and among the flock. Overseeing is best done from the ground up. And eldering, if you will, I think is best handled with the faith of a child. But it's all one and the same. And the responsibility of a pastor-elder bishop is very simple. Shepherd the flock of God according to the will of God. How do you do that? Ministry of the word and prayer. Lots of prayer. But if that's the responsibility of a pastor, of an elder, of a bishop, what's the responsibility of the, of the flock to the shepherd? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and verse 17. I'll just give you those two verses. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Hopefully, prayerfully, if there are men in leadership... Yeah, what about that, Rick? How come there aren't women in leadership? Well, in a way there are because all the men are married. (laughs) We wouldn't do it any other way because we would take us in a wrong direction. Our wives are like, you really want to do that? No, dear. (laughs) We'll talk more about that as we get further into Paul's teachings and Paul's letters. Why are elders men and not women? And is there really something to that? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Not tonight, but we will talk about that. Hebrews thirteen seventeen also says, Obey your leaders and submit, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would not be profitable for you. So there's an interesting dynamic of leadership in the church, and especially in this day and age, we don't really like that much. What we really want is an independent outsider. We don't want any of those insider guys, you know. And when it comes to leadership in the church, we really like to be autonomous and independent. But you know what? The definition of a follower of Jesus is one who submits himself. And whether it's in leadership or not, the Bible is very clear. In Christ Jesus, submit yourselves one to another. It doesn't matter if you're holding office in the church or not. You're called, my call 
is not to sit over everybody as pastor. My call is to submit myself to this fellowship. So that's how it goes. Verse 24. They passed through Pisidia, that's Pisidian Antioch, and they came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed back to Antioch, I added the back, but they sailed to Antioch from which they had been commended to the grace of God. Note that they were commended to the grace of God to go into Galatia. We talked about that last week. To take the message of the gospel of grace, not the law of the Jews, but the gospel of grace. They had been commended by the grace of God for the work they had accomplished. Verse 27, when they had arrived, this is back now at Antioch, and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things God had done with them and how He opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a long time with the disciples. Again, from Antioch, out on mission, and back to Antioch, anywhere from two to three years now they've been gone. And Paul and Barnabas were planting and teaching and discipling and encouraging fellowships and raising up leadership all in absolute Gentile territory punching a hole into the devil's playground. It's marvelous. And if you look at it on a map and you can look at the back of your most of your Bibles will have a little map that shows the missionary journeys of Paul. So you can look at the first one and see just where we've been. But they just swing around right up there into Gentile territory and out again. And they will return. But the enemy was not the only one who is getting upset at the work of Paul and Barnabas. Chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Hold it right there. If anyone begins a sentence... Unless you do, fill in the blank, and finishes it with, you cannot be saved, it's probably heresy. And I use that word intentionally, it's a strong word, but if someone says, unless you do such and such, unless you do these things, unless you do this and that, you cannot be saved, it is a lie from the pit. Because your salvation, my salvation, is not based on anything that I do other than receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. Which is not really even a doing. Faith in the grace of God. That is what saves. And there are still Christians today, many Christians today, preaching many heresies. M-I-N-I or M-A-N-Y. Either way it works. They're preaching heresy. The heresy that says unless you do this list of five things required by our denomination, you're not going to be saved. Well, that's not true. Unless you're one of us. Unless, and some are saying this these days, unless we keep some of the customs of Moses, you can't be saved. Unless we keep the law. Maybe we need to go back to circumcision. I am totally opposed. The Shabbat, Sabbath. There are Christian churches that say you must keep the Sabbath. If you don't keep Sabbath, you can't be saved. That's heresy. Because our salvation is not based on the keeping of the law, but on the grace of Jesus Christ. Some say we should keep the feasts of Israel. 
We should do Passover and Sukkot and all those. And you know what? I love the Feast of Israel. They're a hoot. They're fun to do and to experience, especially as you're studying through and thinking through the Hebrew Scriptures and how the Jewish people did things. And to consider some of the feasts that we're going to be able to take part of in the Millennial Kingdom. Sukkot is the big one. That massive camp out. We're all going to be camping out with Jesus in Jerusalem. That would be marvelous. But not for salvation's sake. It diminishes the grace of Jesus anytime I say, I accept His grace, and this is my part. This is my work. This is what I do. Well, that's not biblical. Paul said in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God being justified freely. Freely. By His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Do you know what the Greek word freely means? Freely! It doesn't cost you anything. 1 Peter 1.18, Peter said, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, spotless the blood of Christ. Guess what? That blood every last drop was poured out 2,000 years before I was born. I had nothing to do with it. Other than, I, than that, I, I needed it. I've got a dead fly on my Just landed on my nose. <laughs> Ephesians 2, verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, let's just be clear about that. Anytime someone says, unless you, da, 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 you cannot be saved, it's not true. And Paul is not happy about this. Verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, watch what they do. They were passing through both Phoenicia, that is Lebanon, and Samaria, which is in Israel today, Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So they're going down to have this conversation about all these new Gentile believers and all the way down as they're traveling, they're telling all their brothers and sisters in the churches on the way down and everybody's just thrilled to no end. Great joy among the brethren. And verse 4, when they had arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, well, that's cool. Some of the Pharisees actually came to faith in Jesus. Praise the Lord. But they carried along some baggage. They stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Listen, great joy is always present where good news is shared. Grumpiness is not. Grumpiness does not accompany the gospel. All the way down the coast... They're sharing this good news. And everybody's thrilled until they get to Jerusalem. And now we have some grumps. Well, they've got to be cut. (laughs) They're going to be one of us. Part of the group. We suffered. All should suffer. You know I mean? That's the attitude. When we share the gospel, we are not making a list and checking it twice. By the way, Santa Claus is a legalist. Makes his list. (laughs) 
He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been good or bad. So what? Be good for goodness sake. Or you're going straight to coal land. You know? Jude 24 tells us that Jesus is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of His glory blameless with... Anyone know how it ends? Great joy. We're going to stand in front of Jesus with great joy. Not with our heads bowed down. Not with the weight of our sin on us. Not with wondering, was there just something on the list that I missed? No. Great joy. Why? Because He is able to make me stand. Well, verse 6. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and began to speak to them. Now, hold on a second. I've been in those meetings. Perhaps some of you have as well. Church meetings in which there is much debate. Boy, when I think of the hours I spent that I will never get back in elders meetings having much debate. I mean literally hours. One of the churches that I served in previously, not not even in the state of Washington, different church, every Monday night for six months we debated the role of women in the church. No women were there to discuss it with us. It was just us guys, right? <laughs> Debating the role of women and what the Bible has to say. And just head to head and debate, 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 debate. And when I look back on that, you know how much time we, we spent in prayer? Not much. We opened the meeting. Let's all bow and pray. Blah, 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 blah. Amen. All right, let's get into it. <laughs> 7 o'clock in the evening to 11 o'clock every Monday night. And I was a youth pastor. I'm like, dude, I don't even care what you guys are talking about. <laughs> You know, I got a balloon race I got to go plan. <laughs> How often do we debate and debate and talk and discuss and work it out and then pray if we have time? And what's interesting to me here, and I want you to notice this, in Acts chapter 15, the word prayer is not mentioned once. Debate is mentioned a few times. There's a lot of discussion. A lot of things are shared, a lot of opinions given, a lot of very biblical opinions, by the way, and and in spite of the fact that no one's praying and we don't see a single instance of prayer in Acts 15, the Holy Spirit still tells them what to do, still works with them. God is so good. He is so gracious. I would not be sitting here at this point in my life today if God waited for me to pray every time He acted. And yet... I think how my life might have been different had I prayed before acting. So many different times. I'm not saying that they didn't pray, but I am saying we don't see it. It's not even mentioned. Back in in Lystra and Pisidia and Perga and Pamphylia, notice when they they gave them shepherds and, and elders, they prayed and fasted. It's very clear that they were praying then. But now we got an issue to discuss. So let's discuss it. Verse 7, going on. After there had been much much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us. This had a huge impact on Peter. He would recall this now. At this critical moment. Because for Peter, it was just, he he didn't see it coming. He didn't expect it. That the Holy Spirit was poured out on Cornelius and his family. Weirdest thing in in Peter's ministry life. So he says, remember that happened. And I love how Peter notes that the reason it happened is God knows the heart. Verse 8, God who knows the heart gave them the Holy Spirit. He said, and verse 9, He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Which has nothing to do with circumcision. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither your, neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? A weight, the heaviness. Do you ever do that? Strap a yoke on someone that you yourself couldn't carry, but they need to? Now, at first asking of that question, you might respond, no, I wouldn't do something like that, parents. Have you ever required of your children something that was not required of you when you were a child? Because you couldn't do it. Have you ever had expectations for your own kids that were higher even than the expectations that were on you? Or maybe you remember how heavy the weight was and yet you find yourself putting the same thing on your kids that was put on you? I wonder about this. Teachers. Do teachers ever expect things of their pupils that they themselves would not have been able to accomplish at the same age? Shepherds. Do shepherds, do elders in churches, not our guys. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not pointing out our guys, except maybe Doug, but I'm not any of the other guys. I'm kidding. Do our shepherds ever put a weight on our fellowship that they themselves are not willing to bear? They ever force you to take insurance, but they don't have to? I'm sorry, what, did I say that out loud? Saints, if we are going to put a weight of expectation on other people, we better be ready to come alongside and shoulder the burden ourselves. If we're going to say, you need to do this, we better be ready to do it ourselves. And Peter says, you know what? We weren't even able to keep the law. And now you want to put it on them? I like Peter's thinking on this. I think he's landing in a good place. And in verse 11 he says, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. You can't say I'm saved by grace, but you have to get circumcised. I'm saved by grace, but you need to keep this festival or you need to keep this feast or you need to keep the Sabbath. You can't do that. Either we're all saved by grace or none of us are saved by grace. So Peter says, And Jesus just doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't put weights on our shoulders. Jesus carries us on His shoulders. That's grace. In verse 12, all the people kept silent. Well, finally, at least Peter was able to shut the mouths of the debaters for a moment. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. 